Well, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. Glad you're here, especially if you're a guest this morning. And if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27 this morning. And as many of you know, over the past 13 weeks or so, we have been working our way through a series looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a sermon that was given by Jesus early on in his ministry, and it's meant to paint a picture for us of what following Jesus looks like. And we're going to be wrapping up our series on the Sermon on the Mount today. And it's interesting if you stop and consider that in these chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, only one character opens his mouth. There's no dialogue. There's no questions asked. There's no vocal response. The focus is all on Jesus in these three chapters. It's him speaking without stopping. And it impresses upon us his complete authority in our lives. In fact, when he finishes his sermon, it says at the end of Matthew chapter 7 that the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And as Jesus closes his sermon, he does it by calling his listeners to action. It doesn't seem like Jesus is really too concerned with leaving his listeners with warm feelings or an emotional story to end. In fact, he ends his sermon with some pretty stark warnings. If you've got a Bible, you can see how he ends his sermon, and great was the fall of it. Mic drop, in a sense. Not necessarily a seeker-sensitive type sermon, if you know what I mean. He presents us with these important choices, choices about the kind of people that we're going to be. And as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount this morning, listen to how Jesus ends his sermon in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. So let me pray for us this morning before we look at it together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you tell us exactly what we need to hear, and that you do it out of love and grace, because you care for us, and you want to be near us. And we pray this morning that as we look at your word, that you would encourage us, that you would draw us closer to yourself, and that we might rest in the hope of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you have ever heard of the Jefferson Bible, or better known as the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. In the latter years of his life, Thomas Jefferson, who was our third president and also founded the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, decided to undergo a project where he went about cutting out certain portions of the gospel accounts and pasting other portions together. Basically, he combed through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he used a razor to cut out anything that didn't appeal to him. 
And at the end of the project, when it was all said and done, much of the gospel accounts were deleted from Jefferson's version of the gospels. He pretty much took out any of the miracle accounts. He took out most mentions of the supernatural. Uh, He took out um, the passages that indicated that Jesus was divine. He kept a lot of the historical accounts and some of Jesus' more milder teachings. And you can actually go and look at this Bible online at the Smithsonian website. But it's interesting that in the Jefferson Bible, he keeps the entirety of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 completely intact, with the exception of three verses that we just read in chapter 7, verses 21, 22, and 23. Jefferson said that he cut out these verses because in them, Jesus speaks in the first person when he discusses the day of judgment. And he didn't like it. These verses weren't appealing to him. They made him uncomfortable, so he got rid of them. And I wonder this morning what portions of the Bible you would like to cut out. What parts of Scripture do you wish weren't there? It's an interesting question, one that may tell you a lot about your own heart motivations. In fact, I once heard someone say, if you want to know what the Lord is saying to the church today then we need to be reading the parts of our Bible that are not underlined. In other words, pay attention to the difficult passages that you wish weren't there. It'll tell you a lot about who you are. And this morning, as we look at one of the passages that didn't sit well with Thomas Jefferson, you'll probably think that in some ways it's understandable that he cut it out because it's one of the more uncomfortable passages to read in the gospel accounts. But I think this morning, as we read and understand these verses properly, we'll find that they actually bring a whole lot of rest and hope to our hearts and our souls. At first, these words may make us uncomfortable, but as we look a bit deeper at the passage, I wonder if you won't see the peace and hope that these verses bring. We just read the last words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and as he's concluding, he's giving his listeners some choices, kind of like a fork in the road where you've got to choose one way or the other. And as we consider this passage this morning, we're going to look at it by talking about two different choices. The first choice is obvious, the choice in verses 24 to 27. It's the choice of which foundation you're going to build your life upon. But the second choice in verses 21 to 23 isn't as obvious, but it's the choice that we make daily between being and doing. Being and doing. To see what I mean, let's first take a look at the choice Jesus offers us in verses 21, 22, and 23, and it's the choice between being and doing. Verses 21 to 23 are some of the most frightening verses in all of the Bible. It tells of people who know Jesus, who have done amazing things for God in their life, yet in the end, they're cast out of Christ's presence. Remember, there are only three verses in all of the Sermon on the Mount that Thomas Jefferson actually cut out of his Bible because it didn't sit well with him. He didn't find Christ talking about casting people out very appealing. But if we stop and actually look at what Jesus is really saying, these three verses are full of grace. What Jesus is basically saying in this passage is that you can go to church your whole life, You can give hours of your time away in service. You can read your Bible and give money and pray and act right and stay faithful. And still, when it's all said and done, it won't be enough. Because we can't earn God's favor. 
Did you notice that the people Jesus turns away from him? Did you notice the characteristics that we see in their life? They call him Lord, Lord in verse 21. It's very earnest. It's a respectful way to address Jesus. Did you notice that the people that Jesus turns away did amazing ministry and they served others well? Verse 22 says they preached in Christ's name. They cast out demons. They did miracles. And what do they get for their respect and their knowledge and their work and their faithfulness? Well, in the end, you hear the words from Jesus in verse 23, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look, it's scary to think that you can know Jesus and you can even work your whole life on his behalf and still be lost in the end. What in the world is going on here? Well, the key to this question is found in verse 21, and it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, what is the will of the Father in heaven? Or in other words, what does God want from you in your life? What does God want you to do for him? It's obvious from this passage that doing things for God isn't enough. There's got to be another way to earn God's favor. I mean, these people that we read about, they've got success. It's seen in their amazing fruit and their preaching and their miracles. But the question is, were they the right kind of people? There's an important distinction to be made between what we do and who we are. What we do and who we are. We can do a lot of amazing things in the name of Jesus. But Jesus isn't concerned about what we do so much. He's much more concerned about who we are. These people are focused on the outside. They're focused on their activities. And Jesus has his attention focused on the inside. It's constantly focused on our hearts. Jesus doesn't accept us because of what we can do for him. He accepts us because we understand and confess that we can't do anything at all to earn his favor. In fact, as you read the rest of the scriptures, you find out it's not about doing at all. It's about being. It's about being the kind of person who knows that you're in desperate need of Jesus. And this is where we get to see the counterintuitive nature of Christianity from this passage. In this passage, Jesus is teaching us that it's not necessarily knowledge that God wants. It's not even amazing ministry that God wants. You can know a lot about God and do a lot of amazing things for him and still be lost in the end. You can still hear Jesus say, I never knew you. We see from this passage that we can know about Jesus, do amazing things in his name, and yet not be known by him. And that's the key. The people in this passage obviously had used Jesus' name freely, but their names were not known by Jesus. You may know Jesus, but does he know you? I went to high school with Major League Baseball pitcher Matt Cain. He recently retired a few years ago, but Cain played for the San Francisco Giants. He had an amazing career over 13 years, won three World Series, pitched the 22nd perfect game in Major League Baseball history, And when the Giants went to and won the World Series in 2012, he pitched a few of those games. And I was following along and also keeping an eye on how my high school friends were responding on Facebook. And it seemed like almost everyone who I went to high school with had something to say about how they knew Matt Cain. And if you didn't know any better, you would have thought that these people were best friends with Cain. 
these Facebook posters. But the reality is that Cain probably didn't personally know most of these people at all who were posting on Facebook. It had been 10 years since they'd been in high school together. They know Matt Cain, but Cain doesn't know them. They may know who Matt Cain is, but they aren't known by Matt Cain because they don't really have anything in common. They don't really have anything that would bring them together anymore. And in a sense, that's the idea that Jesus is driving home in this passage. The people in this passage believe that they know Jesus, but apparently they never have given Jesus the chance to know them. That is, they never gave him the chance to come into contact with their heart, their innermost life. Look, in this passage, we actually see successful Christian workers. And we learn that it's possible to work for Jesus and not yet live under him. It's possible to do amazing things for Jesus and still not be known by him. Think of Judas, one of his 12 disciples. He preached, he performed miracles, he cast out demons, he walked with Jesus for three years, saw amazing things, yet he didn't know Jesus in a personal saving way. Jesus didn't know him. And isn't it striking that in all three chapters of the sermon, if you've been with us for the past 13 or 14 weeks, Jesus does not talk a lot about amazing ministry being the thing that captures his attention. Jesus doesn't talk a whole lot about the amazing things that we do. He talks about who we are as being, uh, who, who we are as being the most important thing. It's all about who we are, not what we do. And so the question for us is, are you a person characterized by poverty of spirit, by meekness, by mourning over your sin? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is there any of that in your life? It's not what you do that earns friendship with Jesus. It's who you are that attracts him. And this is so tempting right now because we could... We are so used to doing that we'll turn it around on the other way and say, okay, I need to be more meek. I need to be more uh, poor in spirit. But that would just be trying to earn our salvation in the opposite way. We just need to recognize who we are in all of our sinfulness and all of our failures and allow Jesus to know us. The Sermon on the Mount describes the type of people who Jesus knows. He knows those who can't make it on their own. He knows those who can't help themselves. Jesus knows the poor in spirit, the ones who don't assert their rights, the ones who hate their moral failures, the ones who rely on God's grace alone. And it's not our amazing accomplishments or our spirituality that gets the attention of Jesus. It's our amazing poverty. It's the need that we have that captures his attention. It's not about what we do for him. It's about who we are and how much we need him. And this is a huge relief for us. For a group of people who would be characterized as doers. This passage runs completely opposite of our experience in almost every other area of our life, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Normally, you're valued, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're at home with kids or in the office or in the classroom, normally you're valued because of what you can do or accomplish. In every other area of life, our worth is tied to our production. At work, at home, in school, in relationships. But Jesus comes and he rearranges the structure. He says that our worth has nothing to do with what we do or don't do for him. It has everything to do with whether he knows us or not. And so are you the type of person that Jesus came to rescue? Are you the helpless and the weary and the poor? You can stop doing 
Jesus doesn't know us because of the amazing things we do. He doesn't dismiss us because of our failures and our setbacks. Jesus knows us because we realize we are hopeless without his saving work in our lives. It's the choice between being and doing. That's the first choice that Jesus gives us this morning. The second choice, and it'll be a little quicker, is the choice Jesus offers between a foundation of sand and a foundation of rock. In these final verses, Jesus paints a picture for us of two men who are building a house. One man has taken Jesus' words to heart, and it actually says in the passage that he does them, and I realize the irony of that. I just said we're not doers. Seems to contradict what we just said, but we should understand this word referring to the person who embodies the characteristics of a dependent life that Jesus has been talking about through his sermon. So the person who knows they've got nothing, the person who's poor in spirit, the person who mourns over their sin, the one who's meek, these are the wise people who build their house on the rock. But the person who pays no attention to Jesus' words, who doesn't feel any need for the gracious words of Christ, this person is the fool who builds his house on the sand. And the question for us this morning is, what are you building your life upon? It's interesting to notice in this passage that a life built on the rock or on Jesus is not spared storms. I hope you notice that. Both houses endure the same storms and floods and winds of life. And this is really important for us to understand because Jesus never promises us that if we follow him, our lives will be easy. Both people who build on the rock, both people who build on the sand suffer through cancer. Both folks who build on rock, both folks who build on sand experience disappointment in life, relational breakdown. Both people build on rock, build on sand. You're both going to struggle with addictions and broken relationships at the same frequency, sometimes even more than those who build on sand. No one is spared the tragedies and the heartbreaks of life. So the question isn't about whether or not we'll experience life storms as followers of Jesus. That is going to happen. The question is, what's going to happen when life storms hit us? It's when storms hit that we begin to see what type of foundation we have underneath our lives. Both the house built on rock and the house built on sand seem to be built well, seem to be solid in good weather, but the storm comes and it tests the foundation. It's important to notice in this passage that Jesus is not contrasting Christians and non-Christians. Both of these builders are ones that hear Jesus' words. Both are members of the visible Christian community, in a sense. Both read the Bible. Both go to church. Both listen to sermons. Both read Christian books. But the deep foundation of their life is hidden from view, and only a storm will reveal the truth. Look, everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in this world is building their life on some foundation. Everyone is building a house. Everyone is building their life on some foundation that they believe to be true and stable. And it's so easy to build our lives on the foundations that are going to fail us when storms come and hit. The foundation of money, the foundation of power, the foundation of pleasure, the foundation of prestige. It's so easy in our context to trust our connections and our ingenuity and our hard work and to think we're laying a solid foundation and that it's going to be enough. And in dry weather, when things are pleasant, as they often are, 
every building plan and every house looks the same. These things we trust in many ways seem fine when the weather is great. But what happens when the storms of life begin to batter you? When things don't go as you had planned, when it seems like nothing is working out? What happens when you get the news, my father-in-law did a, a few months ago, that the company you've worked for for decades no longer wants to employ you and decides to let you go? What happens when you get the call from the doctor after a routine visit and he gives you news that you thought you'd never hear? What, what happens when the person you married decides that they're not sure they want to be married to you anymore? What happens when it seems like it's all you can do just to make it another day because of your depression or your loneliness or your addiction? What happens when you get the news that a close friend has taken their own life? Look, when we experience the rain, the floods, the strong winds of life, it's then that our foundation is exposed. It's then that our foundation really matters. And Jesus is begging us in this passage. He is inviting us to build our lives on a solid foundation. Jesus wants us to build our lives on a foundation that has the ability to weather the storms of life. Jesus wants us to build our lives on a solid foundation, what he says on rock. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't say that the wise man builds his house on a rock? Jesus says that the wise man builds his house on the rock. And that indefinite article is so important Did you know that the Psalms, God is referred to as a rock over 20 times. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my rock, my God, and whom I take refuge. Psalm 31.3 says, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Psalm 62.2 says, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Look, a rock is solid, it's unchanging, it's sure, and God is likened to a rock many times throughout the Bible because God is solid, he's unchanging, he's sure. And things in our life might change, but God always stays the same. We may experience grief and heartache, but God is still good working things out for our ultimate benefit. And it's only as we build our lives on this rock, on God himself, that we'll be able to endure the storms of life. Knowing that we might experience some strong storms and they might pound us harder than we think we can handle, but our foundation is sure as we build our lives upon the rock. Because Jesus closes his sermon, he's giving us some choices this morning. He's inviting you and me to rest in him, to give up our notion that we can earn his favor by what we do. And he's inviting you and me to hope in him, to come and to build our lives on him, the rock that is strong enough and sure enough and secure enough to keep us standing in the midst of life storms. As Jesus ends his sermon, you and I have got a choice to make. The rock is there. And the question is, are we going to build on it? Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that encourages us in the midst of life's storms, in the midst of all of our busyness and all of our doing. You come and you invite us to confess our weakness, to simply be and allow you to come and cleanse us. It's nothing we do that earns your love. It's only what you've done for us. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we move forward, we would build our lives on the sure foundation of who you are, 
and that through the good times and the bad, we would stand secure because we are standing on you and your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.